You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up today, if you're looking for a part-time job with the City of Vaughan, stick around for details about their job fair. Also on the show, how you can help the Gift of Life Association right here in York Region. But we begin with hitting the links for a good cause. Jim Lang starts us off. Coming up on August 23rd at the awesome Copper Creek Golf Club in Kleinberg, one of the top tracks in York Region, is something really special. The Jim Smith Memorial Golf Tournament. It's all about the National Limb Saving Program with Sunnybrook Hospital. Talk more about it. Thrilled to be speaking to one of the experts in the field, Dr. Giuseppe Papia. Doctor, how are you? Great. How are you doing? Uh, fine, thank you. Uh, this is something that's very near and dear to my heart because my father is a type 2 diabetic. Uh, my grandmother was. I have a friend who's a type 1. And through, with education for my family, I realized how important circulation and how, how much reality is a potential to losing a limb when you're diabetic. Absolutely. It's a very high risk, especially if you develop a little sore on your foot or toe. I think if you ask most people if they know somebody with diabetes, they'd say yes. I think if you ask them if uh, they know somebody with diabetes that had a foot sore that got treated, they say yes. But if you ask them if they knew that, that at that point, that that person would have a worse outcome than if they had breast cancer, prostate cancer, or colon cancer combined, nobody knows this problem. About 50% of those people will, will lose their lives because of their disease within two years, and 75% of them will end up with a leg amputation without treatment. So this is a huge fire alarms that aren't going off, and people just don't know. It, it seems that something this significant, doctor, would, would be something more front and center in our society. We would hear more about it. Why don't we? I think that's the point of this program and uh, everything that we're doing at Sunnybrook. Uh, thanks to great support uh, by our donors and uh, this golf tournament. We are trying to get the word out there uh, to show people that this is a huge problem. Uh, I think that going forward with the tsunami of patients of diabetes coming, this is going to be the next cancer care, the next cardiac care. And I think that uh, we're hearing more about it because we have an aging population. I, and I also, I worry as a parent uh, with the diet and lack of exercise for the upcoming generation, the risk of sounding like an old guy. Kids are not as active as they were before. They drink more sugary drinks. And I wonder, could that create more of another tsunami, as you say, of future diabetics? There's no question that your highest risk of type 2 diabetes is obesity. And that comes with poor diet and uh, uh, sedentary lifestyle, not moving around. I too feel old when I start saying things like kids these days. Uh, so I know exactly what you mean, but it does seem that kids are staying indoors rather than outdoors and are less active. Uh, so that's a big problem. Uh, I think that we're going to address, uh, the other big problem is cigarettes. If you have a smoking diabetic, that's a ticking time bomb. That's a recipe for disaster because cigarettes affect your blood vessels. Diabetes affect your blood vessels. The combination, uh, really becomes a huge problem for these patients. The organization's called Project Saving Legs. You can get them on Twitter, at Saving Legs. 
Dr. Papia, you are obviously a, a vascular specialist into cardiac. Uh, becoming a doctor, getting into medicine is obviously a passion. What led you to this specialty and trying to help people and prevent the loss of limbs through diabetes? Actually, it was a patient. Uh, so when I started, nobody was doing this kind of work, uh, not in an organized fashion in Canada. Still not very organized, but we're getting better. I had an older patient uh, who is uh, literally a rocket engineer. Oh. I uh, <laughs> called him a rocket scientist. He got very upset about being demoted. And it was the first time I ever demoted somebody by calling him a rocket scientist. But he said, you know, the scientists came up with the crazy ideas. The engineers made them work. Ah, so right. okay. uh, he had a little toe ulcer. He had diabetes. He had pain. And he was almost 90. And most of the, you know, most of those patients when I was training, they just go on to leg amputation, nothing we could do. But at Sunnybrook, we have a unique program where the vascular surgeons work in the uh, cardiology lab. So I started using the wires and my partner started using the wires and technologies that they've been using on the heart in two millimeter vessels to go down to the foot. And uh, I was able to cure this man's ulcer, relieve him of his pain. Uh, he uh, went on to die of old age with his leg still intact. And uh, it kind of was an aha moment that uh, one, we're not doing a great job for these patients. And there's a lot we could do with a little bit of local anesthetic and these three meter wires that are 14 thousandths of an inch. So we've been working with different device companies, different technologies, and trying to uh, bring this forward and treat these patients. The other problem is, as you just mentioned, people don't know about it. So we're often seeing the patients too late. We're often getting the patients when the problem is way down the road rather than case finding and trying to screen them beforehand. So uh, Project Saving Legs has been about setting up this program to treat, and the National Limb Saving Program is about screening them and getting them before they get down that path. How, how important is even a daily walk, if you're a type 2 diabetic, going for a nice walk every day to preventing a loss of a limb? Well, I think the exercise is key uh, for sure. The problem with patients with diabetes is they often don't have sensation in their feet. So that daily walk, if they don't come with proper shoes and daily foot checks, could cause a problem. So often people with diabetes don't have enough blood flow um, to heal an ulcer, but will have enough blood flow to maintain their skin intact. So daily foot checks is critical to these patients' uh, care, as well as keeping on top of their diabetes, their medical care. And I can't say enough about quitting smoking. Uh, if you get more details, you want to be part of the golf event happening at the Jim Smith Memorial Golf Tournament, August 23rd, Copper Creek Golf Club, go to their event page, savelimbs.org, to their event, event page, and click on the link to the golf tournament. Uh, your time in the links will make a difference, as the commercial says. And when you think about this and think about all the people that you, you're saving limbs, it's a, it's a significant thing. I... I I had worked with a, a hockey player who had lost a limb. He had had a cardiac incident and had a loss of blood flow and ended up losing a leg and how much of a seismic life change it was for him. Just basic daily things he had to relearn because he had a prosthetic leg. And I, and I just can't imagine that if with the wealth and technology in this country, that if we can do better, how, much, how many lives we can improve that way, doctor? Well, we can improve, we think, thousands. I think that in this country, about probably 2,000 amputations a year uh, for this uh, issue. In our province, that rate is probably close to 40%. In the dedicated diabetic foot centers that I visited in Europe, their uh, rates of amputation are closer to 4%. So this isn't even, this is using technology 
technology that we have, reinventing uh, the way we organize, uh, the way we see patients so that we can get to them before they get to that problem. And you're right. You know, for elderly patients, don't have a lot of resources, they get a leg amputation. That's like a death sentence, let alone how indignified their lives become. I, I wonder from your standpoint, I mean, you put so many hours in as a physician, doctor. What is the satisfaction from realizing that through your work and through your efforts, you saved a limb? Is that the ultimate thank you? I think that for for me and I think all my colleagues as physicians helping people, there's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing more satisfying. Having said that, when we can't help people, to me, there's nothing more devastating. And there's no question here we could be doing a better job and we should be doing a better job for these patients. I mean, Sunnybrook is known around the world, and you can see why with some of the work that Dr. Giuseppe Papi is doing with the Division of Cardiac and Vascular Surgery. There's a reason why he holds the J. Ross and Patricia Quigley Chair in Limb Preservation at the U of T because of what we're talking about. Doctor, this has been actually fascinating for me, not just professionally, but personally because of my father. And I'm going to have a chat with him later. He's about to turn 79, and, and I worry about him as a type 2 diabetic. I didn't realize the importance of the daily foot checks. So this maybe might save one of us legs. So thank you. You're very welcome. And thank you. And please come out and support uh, this great event. If you want more details, again, you can get details at the Project Saving Legs. Their Twitter feed is at Saving Legs. And for the golf tournament, August 23rd, Copper Creek, really, if you have not played there in Kleinberg, it is one of the top handful of golf courses in York Region. It's that good. Go to savelimbs.org. Go to the events page and click on the link for the Jim Smith Memorial Golf Tournament. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Our next story takes us to the York Region Gift of Life Association. Sydney Bourguignon with the story. Only 34% of Ontarians are registered organ donors. That is equivalent to 4.3 million out of an eligible 12.6. As of June 30th, 2019, there are currently 1,624 Ontarians who are currently waiting for an organ transplant. Today's guest on the feed, Jason Rumball, is no stranger to the long and hard wait of being on the transplant list. He joins us today as one of York Region's Gift of Life Association advocates. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Jason. My pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. If you could start by explaining to me what the York Region Gift of Life Association is and its purpose. York Region Gift of Life, I think it's uh, maybe about six or seven years ago. It was uh, founded by uh, this uh, uh, lady by the name of Alicia who uh, lost her father to a very uh, tra- a tragic accident. And, you know, she was quite close with her dad. And uh, before her dad passed away, he uh, discussed with the uh, her family about donating his organs in the case of, you know, he uh, was going to be passing away. So she decided, you know, there wasn't anything in York Region at the time for organ donation awareness, and she wanted to do something to, uh, like what her father did, to encourage others to or, uh, donate the organs. So the York Region Gift of Life Association uh, was formed, and myself, I've, I got a kidney from my sister 19 years ago, and I had no idea that there there was this uh, organ donation awareness group out there. So uh, I, I I joined up with the York Region Gift of Life Association, and you know from there getting to meet Alicia and and some other members who you know some that have gone through a kidney transplant or you know a variety of different organs, just to know that there's others out there in the community that are are going through the same thing, and that we uh, were out there to t- tell our stories. Uh, share what we've we've been through and encourage people to 
donate your organs. And you mentioned that you got a kidney from your sister 19 years ago. Do you mind telling me a bit about that, your story, your journey with that? Yes, so uh, I uh, was born with a number of uh, uh, medical problems, uh, spina bifida, bladder issues, uh, things like that. You know, over the years, you know, I've been seen by a number of specialists and uh, different surgeries and things like that. And, and slowly over over time, over 21 years, my kidney was my kidney was failing, and I had no idea. It was quite quite the shock to me. I was, you know, going through uh, the college uh, at the time. I was about 20, you know, 20, 21 years old. Um, you know, very sick. I was only born with one kidney, so that also made things a little bit more complicated as well. And you know, I got you know quite uh, sick. You know, all the signs that are similar to uh, to the flu, and my blood pressure was very high. And, you know, I had to go to the hospital right away. My blood pressure was very, you know, extreme. And uh, they were quite concerned, thinking, oh, maybe it's a you know, heart issue or they didn't know what it was. And they ran a whole bunch of tests and they determined that it was a kidney failure. So uh, they you know, brought in a kidney specialist and tried to do what they can to, you know, prevent the uh, the kidney from getting any worse. But, uh, you know, it was too late. I... Uh, my kidney was failing and I uh, would eventually need to go on uh, uh, kidney dialysis. So from there, I was on going to the hospital in Richmond Hill, it was called York Central Hospital at the time, uh, three times a week, uh, four, four and a half hours per treatment. And, uh, you know, that it was uh, keeping me alive. The, the machine was doing what the kidney uh, can't do when it's not functioning well. It was keeping me going and you know uh, it, but it, it takes a toll on the body it could be very hard on the body going through those treatments and stuff like that and I was put on a waiting list at the time and at the time I was told it'd probably be maybe five to seven year wait and you know so I just go ahead and try to make the most of my time at the dialysis clinic and then uh, from there got quite the uh, quite the shock on my uh, on my birthday I was in the uh, the kitchen with my uh, sister, and she she gave me the the most wonderful news I've ever gotten in my life. She was gonna save my life with the with the kidney. Um, I couldn't uh, you know believe you know what I was hearing, and and she she didn't like the fact that you know all these years that you know she watched me go through my health issues, and she couldn't really do anything about it. Uh, she had to rely on the doctors and the surgeons to to do what they can to keep me uh, to keep me going. And now she had the opportunity to step in and and save her her little brother's life, and you know she we went ahead and had the surgery at St. Michael's Hospital uh, January 18th, uh, 2000, and you know from there I got a good uh, you know 19 years of life. So what then do registration rates look like in York Region? Have we seen a steady increase in donor registration? I think we have. I think uh, York Region uh, compared to other parts of the the GTA, I, I've learned that uh, Scarborough is quite low right now, but other parts, Stouffville, like where I'm from, is, uh, you know, quite uh, doing quite well, and, and other parts, uh, Uxbridge is quite, uh, that's right next door to us, is uh, doing well. But I think, uh, you know, there's definitely more that can be done for sure. And how long does it take to register to become a donor, and how many lives can one organ donor potentially save? Um, it just takes two minutes. All you have to do is go to beadonor.ca, uh, you take out your health card, and uh, you know from there you just uh, you know plug in your health card information, and you go through the the process. It'll you know it just takes uh, uh, two minutes, and one uh, person can uh, save eight lives and enhance the uh, seventy five others with uh, tissue donation. And when it comes to organ donation, there are often some 
misunderstandings when it comes to funeral arrangements and whether or not donors can have uh, open caskets if they were to donate skin or eyes or anything like that. Would you mind speaking to this? That's a good question to know. And uh, from what I've learned myself is that, yes, you can have an open casket if you want. And there's ways of, uh, you know, preserving the body to make that possible for sure. And finally, what message do you have for those who may be considering becoming organ donors but aren't quite sure? Um, I think it's best to, you know, talk to the people that know you best, like your your family and friends, uh, you know, uh, at the dinner table, that sort of thing. You know, let's uh, look at the humble bus crash. That was a, you know, very tragic accident where one of the, the hockey players that uh, passed away, he uh, got to save lives. And that started a real movement uh, here in Canada, that even actually reached uh, the attention outside of Canada, you know, weeks before he uh, passed away, he discussed with his, you know, his family, his father, that he uh, wanted to donate his organs, and his dad thought, are you sure about this? And, you know, it's just amazing to know that, you know, he's just a kid and he wants to do this. So that's where it's important to, you know, really, you know, if your kids, you know, bring up these sort of things to, to really, you know, take it seriously and to understand the benefits of uh, doing that. You can save, you know, somebody and actually one of the people that's uh, been a part of my group, uh, she uh, went through a kidney transplant, but she also uh, just uh, saved a, a little kid that uh, sick kids uh, with a part of her liver. So you can actually donate more than once while you're still living. That's quite amazing. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for joining us on the feed and explaining the importance of organ donation and sharing your story. If listeners wanted to find out more information about organ donation or become a donor, where can they go? Um, you can go to, as I said, go to beadonor.ca. It takes two minutes to sign up, and you can uh, find our uh, Facebook page, York Region uh, Gift of Life Association. You can uh, join our group and uh, come out to some of our events. We have uh, different uh, events when we're out in the community sharing our stories. So if you have, uh, if you'd like to help, uh, you know, part of that, if you've been through a kidney transplant or whatever, we would love to have you join our group for sure. All right. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. If you or someone you know is looking for a job, you've come to the right place. Joining us on the show is Sonny Baines, the Director of Recreation Services for the City of Vaughan. Sonny, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So tell us a little bit. I know you've got a job fair coming up. What's going on that day? So we have a Recreation Services job fair being held on uh, Saturday, August 24th at North Thornhill and Valour Village Community Centres from 11 to 4 p.m., so we're, we're going to be conducting interviews for part-time jobs for all, you know, 10 of our Vaughan community centers in a, in a number of areas, fitness, general programs, facilities. We'll also be holding information sessions on aquatic hiring. Uh, we're interviewing for general and specialty jobs, some examples, skate staff, youth room attendant, yoga instructors, gymnastic coaches, and so on. We're also looking for personal trainers, fitness floor staff, fitness class instructors, and they could work at any of our six locations across Vaughan as well. And should they come? Should the applicants come prepared in any way for these interviews? Yeah, applicants are required to complete an application prior to the interviews. Uh, a fillable form is available on our website at vaughn.ca/recjobs, and if they could complete it, print it, and bring it to the interview, that'd be more than helpful. Also, we ask uh, that they bring three references, and if they have any certifications applicable to the job that they're looking to apply to, that would be helpful as well. And who would you suggest apply for these types of positions? 
Well, Recreation Services is a major youth employer. Uh, we have over a thousand part-time staff, mainly students, but we encourage people of all ages to come by. Um, we have positions in, in a variety of areas, so I'm sure we can find something that fits for anyone. And Sunny, do you have some advice for a young person out there? Maybe this is their first part-time job. How do they prepare for that interview? And what do they put on that resume so that it does stand out? Well, sometimes, uh, you know, we'll take a young person, for example. They may not have uh, experience in the workforce, but they have a lot of experiences just through life, through school, through volunteer work that they can share. Uh, the one thing that I would encourage them to do is be confident and, uh, and have fun with it. Uh, we're looking for passionate people uh, who are looking to, to share that passion and talent uh, with, with all our citizens. So, uh, you know, put their best foot forward and, and, uh, and come to one of our centers for the job fair. And one more time, how many um, people are expecting to hire, and when will decisions be made? Well, we'll be making decisions rather quickly. Um, we'll be looking to um, make decisions within about two weeks of the, the interview dates. Um, what we're looking to do after that is schedule training right away for our fall programming that starts September 21st. So uh, we'll be looking for, for all our centers. Uh, you know, obviously with these jobs, there's a, a lot of innovative programming that's coming out. We're also uh, increasing the scope of what we're offering. Um, we have our theater as well. We have our community centers. So there's a lot of fresh stuff coming. So we're, we're looking for a number of staff. So we encourage anyone who's looking for a part-time job and wants to give back to the city of Vaughan and the community they live in, we encourage them to come by. Can you give us a sneak peek? I know you mentioned a couple of programs there, but what else is coming up this uh, fall and winter? Well, we got uh, you know chef programs. We're doing a lot of cooking programs. We made some some renovations to some of our facilities to put in teaching kitchens. Uh, we're looking at computer expert programs, a lot of uh, new performing arts programs or academy programs at the city playhouse are a hit. So you know, if you're an actor, or a singer, or a dancer, we we got the job for you. So uh, there's there's, there's going to be some fun. Okay, so let's remind our listeners one more time if they want more information about the job fair on August 24th, where can they go? They go to our website at vaughn.ca slash recjobs. That's terrific. Good luck with the very first job fair here in Vaughn. And let us know how it goes. Thank you so much, and and, uh, we hope for the best, and uh, this will just be the first of many. Now that you've landed that job, how do you avoid distraction and become more productive? Our next story on the feed suggests that the early bird gets the worm. Afwaba with the survey results. Well, you know that famous saying, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And we are now hearing about a new study that looks into productivity in the workplace. So joining me to chat today is Michael French, who is the regional vice president for Robert Half based in Toronto. Michael, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Okay, so let the listeners know, talk to us about the survey that was done and that talks about productivity at work. It's quite interesting. We surveyed workers and we asked them, what day of the week are you most productive? Surprisingly, Tuesday was number one at 35%, followed by Monday and then the rest of the week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So Tuesday is the big day for getting work done. Wow. Okay. So Monday Junior got the, got the top uh, spot as opposed to Monday. Well, I, and that saying is already synonymous in terms of everybody hates Monday. You're coming off the weekend and then you're lugging yourself back into work. But Tuesday, I'm surprised about that. Did they go into why Tuesday's the most uh, productive day? Well, I think that historically has been known as, as the, the most productive day at work, most popular day at work. But what was really interesting, we talked about sort of why not Monday, was the Sunday scaries. This would be reasons why Sunday evening you start going through some anxiety. And what was really interesting was the reasons why 
the law of employees talked about heavy workloads, work that they can't handle throughout the week, they're having to do on the weekend. They talked about sort of uh, drama or too many colleagues at work interrupting them. So one of the big takeaways here is making sure throughout the week you have your workday planned with minimal minimal disruptions to your work. Oh, okay. See, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense and probably gives us a fuller picture as to why everyone does not like Mondays in terms of going back to work. Okay, that's pretty neat. Um, What are employees also saying about um, workspace productivity? Are they an open space type of worker? Do they prefer being behind closed doors? Well, this one's not that surprising. And unfortunately, this is not the way the world is heading. 44% want to have a private office with the door closed and only 36% want an open office with coworkers. But 20% want to work from home, and 4% want to work somewhere else off-site. But unfortunately, we're seeing fewer offices with those private offices and doors, and the whole world seems to be going to open offices or working from home scenarios. Ah, so that's an interesting juxtaposition in terms of, just as you mentioned, workspaces are now more open now, but more people like their... Um, their privacy, if you will. Uh, why maybe the difference between the two? What's, uh, what are, what's the main goal, I guess, of the employers having an open workspace? And why aren't employees maybe, you know, drifting more towards that sort of open workspace as opposed to them wanting their, um, their privacy? Well, I think when you look historically, everybody dreams of having that corner office with the view, but companies are realizing for best collaboration, everybody needs to be together. And we're seeing more executives also sitting out on the open floor. But we look at distractions at work, they're all kind of even within the 20% range. So chattier social coworkers, the general office noise, the endless conference calls and meetings, and then, my goodness, it's the ever-coming emails that constantly distract people. So those four are the main reasons why people want to be in an office locked away. Wow. Okay. So you're weaving everything so quite quite perfectly. So just as you know, workers are or employers are making more open workspaces, it's leading to just as you mentioned some of the main distractions. As you just mentioned, chatty coworkers. That's a big no-no that people don't like, and I guess it um, deters them away from them being productive. Um, so then. What time uh, would it be best in terms of employees getting their work done? In terms of uh, if a chatty coworker finally comes in, uh, what's the best time of the day that employees find that they are at their, their prime in terms of getting to work and getting things done? Well, 41% thought they were most productive in the early morning. And then by late, after, late morning, 31%. So well over half the people are morning early birds, but only uh, 9% were late afternoon. The world's definitely getting more things done in the morning than the afternoon. What? Okay, so this one's definitely an interesting one. I can barely keep my eyes open when I get to work in the early morning. So uh, did they go into why they are most productive late mornings and um, maybe just lull off when it goes afternoon? Well, I think most people felt in the morning they were refreshed, ready to go. They planned out their day, and by afternoon, the, uh, the exhaustion is setting in and the reality of what's happened throughout the day is derailing them. So most people felt they get the most done in the morning once they've planned out their day and they can execute really, really well. So would it be possible then for maybe employers to have a shortened work day um, in terms of having the typical 9 to 5? Would they maybe, could employers maybe in the future do a 7 to 3? And eight to four, would that maybe help the trend of helping employees be as productive as possible? 
Well, we're seeing many employers offer some kind of flexibility to accommodate employees' restricted schedules. We're seeing people having more and more life scenarios that require some kind of accommodation. If you want to attract the best people, you better be prepared to be flexible. At the same time, I would definitely have some non-negotiables of what that means. But if you aren't offering some kind of flexibility, you won't have the very best people working for you. I love how you just mentioned flexibility there because maybe just uh, 20 years ago or so, it was very rigid. It was the 9 to 5, it was the Monday to Friday, but times, as you just mentioned, are changing and um, that flexibility is needed because a lot of people are juggling more things aside from just work during that normal 9 to 5 schedule. So um, you definitely touched on a point there. I just want to ask quickly in terms of um, the productivity and uh, which days um, employees find that they, they work the best and seeing that 10% only work best on Fridays. Could employers then maybe switch to a Monday to Thursday type of uh, work schedule with maybe longer hours so that employees get the Friday off and then it's really TGIF? Well, you know what? That sounds great to me. So once you find it, let me know and I'll be (laughs) to join. But we're we're also seeing employers start to realize it's not so much when you do the work or where you do the work. That's the great work is getting done. So as the world's changing, we're seeing employers change and focusing more on the output versus the, the, the where and how you're doing it. Fair enough. Okay, and I will definitely continue to look into that study of uh, Monday to Thursday because I will be the first one to sign up. Um, just also quickly again, um, have we seen or have you seen in general uh, maybe productivity decreasing during the summer months? Of course, people may be taking extra vacations um, and, and then an increasing during the winter does it, or is it more or less the same across all of the seasons? Well, that's a great question. I think in general, we do see many people plan their lives around summer vacation. You know, kids are off from school and we want to take vacation in Canada when it's nice and warm. So we do see productivity go down in the summer. Perfect. Okay. And you, I would probably be the number one person as well. Summertime is the most beautiful time of uh, the year. For me, I'm biased, but uh, hey, everyone has their, their best seasons. Where can re- residents go for more information regarding this study? And of course, to get more information about account temps. So I would check out two websites, accounttemps.com. There's lots of information on there and roberthalf.com. Tons of information on the job market, hiring, and lots of information on what's it like in the workforce today. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me today, letting us know all about uh, what's uh, happening in terms of the workplace, in terms of productivity. And I'm sure that uh, employees will, will, I think, like the information that's coming out here and maybe use it to their advantage moving forward. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for replay. If you're a parent and concerned about what your child is consuming online, we have some advice from the experts to help you manage screen time. How much should parents be monitoring their kids' internet access, and is there such a thing as too much monitoring? Joining us today on the feed is Melanie Rora from CyberSmart Canada. She's here to talk to us about cyber safety and how parents can monitor what their kids are viewing on the internet. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me, Sydney. It's great to be here. So if you can just start by providing me with a broad overview of what cyber safety is and why is it such an important topic to discuss? Well, our kids are spending more and more time online. And with that comes a a whole bunch of responsibilities that we never had to deal with when we were children 
in the 80s and 90s growing up. So cyber safety is a huge piece of uh, raising our kids these days. So seeing that kids are starting to use technology at such a young age and are now surfing the web, do you believe parents then should be having discussions with their kids about cyber safety? And if so, how should they be approaching these discussions? So there are three types of digital parents that we've found. The first group is digital enablers. These are the families who give free access to their kids and their devices. And these families kind of follow what their kids are saying they need for technology and let their kids set the family's tech agenda. Uh, And then we've got the other extreme. We've got the digital limiters. And by contrast, these parents focus on minimizing their kids' use of technology. These parents switch off and they don't let their kids have a lot of experiences online. In the long run, these kids are not prepared for a world in which more and more technologies exist. And if you've ever heard the term restriction breeds defiance, it really works here. Children of limiters are the ones who have no digital role models, and they're afraid to tell anyone if they've done something wrong online. So shielding our kids from the internet may work for a time, but once they get online, limiters' kids, they often lack skills and habits to make for a safe and successful online interaction. The third type of digital parent, we call them digital mentors. And these parents, they take an active role in guiding their kids onto the internet. And research from the U.S. suggests that mentors uh, may be the parents who are most successful in preparing their kids for a world that is filled with screens now. And these parents, they actually, they actively shape their kids' online skills and experiences. So this is really the, the best approach to digital age parenting, and it can actually sustain a family long term. Now, do you believe parents should be monitoring what their kids are viewing on the internet or social media platforms? I think that all parents should be uh, taking a, a good look at what their kids are doing. So, and it's not about restricting what they're doing all the time. It's helping them make good choices. So if your child asks for an app or, or a game, you should know what, you know what the dangerous features are of those games or apps and, and make sure that you're aware of them and help your kids to manage that properly. So you can be a great digital mentor. You can still restrict your kids. You can still have rules. But make tech something that gets talked about. And that makes a huge, huge difference with with the kids and families. And is there a way that parents should then go about monitoring what their kids are viewing? So there are lots of different monitoring apps. And parental controls are great, but you can't rely on them solely to keep your kids safe online. Um, They're great for younger children. However, tech-savvy tweens and teens, they can bypass these systems, and they may also have access to Internet outside of your home or on public devices. So it's not just about the parental controls and the monitoring. So on top of that, you want to know uh, what they're doing, and a lot of that is communication. There are monitoring apps uh, created that will help get your kids involved, and this usually is is the way we would recommend doing it. And most of these work better on Android devices than Apple's when it goes for call texting, or sorry, call logging and text logging. And then there are some others uh, that you can place on your, your, your teen's phone if they, you, know, you don't want them to know about it. Because sometimes parent and teen relationships can be strained, and there's a reason for those, those apps. However, I do suggest the best approach is to be honest with your kids when you're going to put a monitoring app on their phone. And research the apps. There's a ton of them out there, and we're not affiliated with any of them, and I, so I don't give huge recommendations for, for anyone. And is there such a thing then as too much monitoring? I know some parents don't want their kids to feel as if they're invading their privacy. Well, I think part of being a parent is invading your kids' privacy. It really is 
the device, especially when your kids are tweens, you pay for this device. You want to know what they're doing with it. You want to make sure they're not doing anything illegal. And a lot of kids don't realize that they can end up in a lot of trouble if they're sending intimate images and, you know, sharing intimate images of someone who sent one to them. And we find that our tweens are doing this. It's not just teenagers that are sending uh, intimate images. It's kids ages eight and up, believe it or not. To my understanding, CyberSmart Canada has guest speakers who speak to kids about internet safety. Would you mind explaining what sorts of topics are covered in these information sessions and why they might be useful? So our CyberSmart trainers are all, um, we come into schools and youth groups and we have programs for both adults and kids. So what we teach the kids is a little different than what we teach their parents. So if you want to be a great digital mentor uh, for your kids, you can also check out our CyberSmart Mentors course and that's done completely online. Believe it or not, the largest group of online porn users are kids ages 12 to 17. And it's not just boys, it's boys and girls. In fact, 90% of our kids have seen porn by the time they're 12 years old. And that's really a sad state of things. Um, you also want to make sure that they're, you have their passwords and you check in on those apps. So if you're allowing them to use Facebook, you're allowing them to use Instagram, uh, don't just follow your kids because they can, they can set up groups where you won't actually see some of the things they're posting. So you want to log in, just check and see who's, who they're friending. You know, if they're friending a lot of people that they don't know in real life, that, that warrants a, a talk. Um, I know some parents who go in and, and check once a week and just delete all the people that hurt their kids don't know in real life. It just depends on what feels right for you and your family. And is there anything else parents or even children should be aware of when it comes to internet safety, surfing the web or social media that maybe we haven't touched upon yet? Well, uh, a big piece is screen time. I'm constantly asked by parents about screen time. And the way we use screens is much different now than when most parents were growing up. So the American Association of Pediatrics used to recommend no screen time for kids under two and only an hour for kids between two and five. And believe it or not, two hours for children over five until adulthood. So we know our kids are getting more than that in school now. And so the AAP has actually changed the recommendation to no limits. However, new research in the UK shows that it's not the amount of screen time so much as what our kids are doing online. So if they're watching three hours of a Planet Earth documentary series, uh, maybe even as a family, that's a lot different than your child watching an hour's worth of unboxing videos on YouTube. So again, too much of anything can be bad. If you notice that screen time is affecting your child in negative ways, then it needs to be dealt with. And negative ways include poor mental health, right? Lack of sleep, no physical fitness, and other addictive behaviors. So uh, loss of interest in other things that they used to like to do, or maybe they have eye strain. We're seeing a lot of kids with eye strain and something called tech neck now, where because they spend so much time looking down, they actually have problems with the backs of their neck and even anxiety when they're not on the device. So in our digital programs, we show kids how and why to self-regulate and our mentor program teaches caring adults how to help their kids regulate. Well, thank you so much, Melanie, for joining us on the feed. If listeners wanted to find out more information about uh, what we just talked about and about cyber safety, where can they go? They can come to our website. We're at cybersmart.ca. And if they want to become a great digital mentor for their kids, uh, they can check out our mentors course at cybersmart.ca slash mentors. All right, perfect. Thank you so much, Melanie, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Sydney. (laughs) 
This is the feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region and beyond. Over to music coordinator Christina Lavecchia and a preview of Rastafest. 105.9, St. Aureus Martin Cesar, The Region, Dance Kiandon. Rasta face my sunny production. Ooh-wee. We have Masani Montek here at our 105.9 studios. She's the managing director of the annual reggae music festival, Rastafest. Thank you very much for coming by the studio and speaking with us today. So Rastafest is on August 17th at Black Creek Pioneer Village. That's at Jane and Steele's just south of us here in York Region. For listeners who don't know about the music festival and have never been, what can they expect? Okay, so it's a family fun festival um, showcasing international artists and, and national artists, reggae artists, right? And what we want to do is showcase different aspects of the Rasa foreign culture. So for example, you have drumming, you have chanting, you have ITEL food, vegan food as people probably know it as, but we call it ITEL food. And then of course, you know, arts and craft. We have a health and wellness component of the festival as well. This year for the second time we are doing a walk. So we're walking through the Jane and French community. Um, from Driftwood Community Centre, from Black Creek Farm, and then we're walking right into the festival ground at, North, at um, Jane and Steel. So from 9 to 5, there's health and wellness. Mm-hmm. From 1 to 4, we have workshops around health and wellness. And then from 6 to 11, we have a, the concert, showcasing a lot of great artists from Jamaica as well as Toronto. And we, when I promote it, I say grandparents, from the babe to grandparents. I mean, you could, you could come out to your grandmother, your grandfather to Rastafest, because that's the kind of festival it's all about, right? And it's also very community-oriented, right? So we work a lot with the community in the Jane and Finch community. And we pride ourselves to be a proud Jane and Finch festival, even though we move around a lot, from Harbourfront, York University, and so forth, yeah. For admission, um, where can they get tickets? So it's best to go online, rastafest.com. There's $20 advance, and there's $30 at the door. Children under 12 are free. You were mentioning performers. Two of them are uh, Nana McLean and Boris Martin, uh, which will be performing for us. We'll be featuring it on our york24-7.com site. So if anybody who wants to um, get a preview of what they could expect at Rastafest, uh, they could head over there. And um, so Rastafest is in its 26th year. So how has it grown over the years? Okay, so... We really go beyond 26 years. <laughs> so we, we started doing... Um, info, info, uh, we started doing some in information around the Rastafari culture since 1977. What happened is this, in 1975, Bob Marley came to Toronto. And three days after his concert, there's a lot of negative press about the Rastafari culture. And I guess it was imported from New York and Jamaica. So we felt that we want to educate the public about the Rastafari culture. So what we did, we started doing a lot of Rastafari events, such as conferences, seminars, workshops, and all that, right? So from 1977 to, say, 1993, we were doing that. Then in 1993, now, we have have the first Rastafest and then we start doing some other events from there on. So we went, we go way back to 1977 based on what was happening 
in a community. We see Rastafest as a, a long-term, long-standing event coming from the 70s. So the 26 years, really, the name Rastafest from 1993 to the present, right? Mm -hmm. But we go way beyond 26 years. Within those 26 years, though, we kind of run a little bit. Mm -hmm. We were in Montreal, we went to Ottawa, we went to Jamaica a couple of times, and now we're back in Toronto. But Toronto's really our home base. Mm -hmm. And we have moved around a little bit, too. We were at Harbourfront one year, two years at York University, three years in the parking lot of Jane and Finch Mall, six years at Downsview Park, and it's their second year at Black Creek Pioneer Village on the north side, though. Most people know Black Creek Pioneer Village on the south side. We're on the north side, 7060 um, Jane Street, mm -hmm. a little bit north of Steeles. Okay. So we're on the north side, not on the south side. I understand this year's Rasta Fest is in celebration of Marcus Garvey's birthday. Can you tell us a bit about Mr. Garvey and um, the connection to Rasta Fest? Great. Okay, so Marcus Garvey, um, he led, I would say, the largest um, repatriation movement from 1930. Right, he's, he's a he was a he's a Jamaican national hero. Um, um, this was back in the twenties, thirties, right? So when he preached in nineteen thirty uh, about black, you know, community and things like that, mm. out of his preaching came the Rastafari movement. So that's a connection between the Rastafari community uh, um, culture and Garvey. His birth is August seventeen, mm. so it was it seemed appropriate to, for us to celebrate his birthday August seventeen mm. with Rastafari. So Rastafari is always the third week in August. So that's by coincidence. His birthday is August, August 17. So this year we want to pay tribute to him to show that, well, yes, you know, the message is there. You know, as I said, the Rastafari movement came out of his movement in the 1930s, right? So that's the connection between Marcus Garvey and Rastafari. For anybody who wants to find more information, so it's rastafest.com. And um, do you have any Instagram um, that they could follow or if they're to gather more information, where can they get that? Yes, it's Rastafest Toronto all the way. So Rastafest Toronto on Instagram, Rastafest Toronto on Facebook, Rastafest Toronto everywhere. They could um, definitely um, follow us on social media. As well as they could call us at 416-638-4235. And the best way to reach us is really rastafest.com. To recap, it's on um, Saturday, August 17th from 1 p.m. to 11 p.m. It's at uh, Black Creek Pioneer Village, North Property, and it's $20 if you purchase it online or it's $30 at the door. And their children on the 12 are free. Thank you so much for stopping by. It was great chatting with you. Thank and you thank so you much. for having thank us. You. In addition to Rasta Fest taking place on August 17th, the Canadian Reggae Music Conference will be taking place on the 16th. Carlene Ling of Bling Events International, who is assisting with the music festival, tells us that the conference will include speaking with women in reggae music and provides a platform where young artists can showcase their talents. To find out more about Rasta Fest and the Canadian Reggae Music Conference, head over to rastafest.com. I'm music coordinator Christina Lavecchia. To get a little feel of the artists you will hear at Rasta Fest, here's Juno Award winning artist Nana McLean with her song yeah. We Belong Together right here on 105.9 The Region. Bring back the old
just to remind you that Rasta Fest is the 17th of August. Check out Jamaica Independence Apartheid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Nana McLean, remember. I'll be there and many more. A lot of veterans will be there. Celebrate. Come out and let's have a ball. and enjoy. Don't forget. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.